It seems a bit odd to look back. Sometimes things get away from us in a time frame manner. Uh, it is the 1st of November, and if any of you look back four years ago uh, in November, we were entering what ended up being one of the more odd two to three year periods that we dealt with. Uh, some of us looking back going, what was going on four years ago, uh, maybe 2019 in November? Well, we were starting to hear rumors of an illness and an outbreak that was taking place coming out of China. Uh, there was uncertainty of how that looked, and of course there's been a lot of discussion about it since then. But for many of us, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen over the next few months and as it ended up years in all reality it has influenced us even today in the way that we do varying things but as that illness began to outbreak and then it began to spread around the world, uh, ECN has a claim to fame of the uh, COVID experience of Houston County. Uh, our claim to fame is this. Does anybody know or remember who Houston County's first banner COVID outbreak person was? If you are that person, stand up and wave. <laughs> Pastor Jeremy was our first uh, uh, COVID experience in Houston County. Um, and let me just go and tell you something about Pastor Jeremy Byler. The guy is diagnosed with COVID, and if I'm not mistaken, was it influenza A at the same time? Because he thought he had the flu and found out he had both. Um, and this is, this is such an odd thing. I mean, we were trying to learn and, and gather whatever information we could at this time. And as it, as it was going on, we were hearing these horror stories of people that were just, you know, uh, being affected horribly by this illness. And Pastor Jeremy comes home with influenza A and COVID, and I, we started planning his funeral. <laughs> not really. But there was this, like, what's going to happen? You know, like, we were talking to each other, like, man, we don't know. Like, checking in every day, like, how are you doing? What's going on? And, and he's like, man, I feel like I have the flu, you know. And then a few days later... He was doing better. And then things, like it was totally against everything that we were reading because he was doing so well with it. And yet there were other people that we all know and love that just seems like that illness would wreck someone unpredictably. And then other people, meh, no big deal. It was so odd and still is at some level to watch how that whole thing transpired. I wonder this morning, are there any of you that still have the effects of having had COVID that you still deal with? So I'm getting better. So I had COVID in 2020, I guess it was. But I remember um, after the that effects of the illness, didn't feel awful. You know what I mean? I, I ended up because of the nature of ministry being you know quarantined as was the popular thing to do there for a while. And and I remember the time that I, I'm confident I had the illness. I tested negative, but I had every sign possible, which was a whole nother you know dynamic to that whole thing. But in the in the, in the process of having every sign possible of, of that, is it is a I, I remember things like my ability to taste and smell changed. And it changed not just then, but it's only been in the last six months or so that my ability to smell things has come back. We're talking two and a half years. Like, not all things, by the way, but we're going down the road the other day and Stephanie gets out some you know, hand lotion or something and I crack a window. And she looks up and she goes, you can smell this. And I said, I can. She goes, you're getting better. I must be two and a half years later. Like, I, I'm starting to smell things again. Something else that was very odd to me. I used to love, and now I do again, because again, in the last six months, things have started changing again. But you know the Gatorade flavors? I've always been a fan of the one and it's difficult because when I send my kids into the store, have them, hey, pick up a Gatorade, I can't tell them if I want the yellow one or the green one. You know what I'm talking about? Lemon lime is the flavor, all right? That's the one I like. My dad drank it forever. It's the one. I, Noel, it's good. Quit shaking your head at me. It's good, okay? So, so but here's the downside. Is it like I can remember drinking lemon lime Gatorade post-COVID and it tasted fine on the entrance of, uh, of having it in my mouth and when I swallowed you know those little green peppers that go on your salad? Pepperoncinis, are those things called? Yeah. The aftertaste was of that pepper. Weird. Super weird. It was even more weird. I didn't eat coleslaw for a year and a half 
because it tastes like soap. I'm dead serious. I've been eating coleslaw at a restaurant and swallowed like, that's Dawn dish soap. The first few times, I even accused the restaurant of like not cleaning their stuff well enough and I was, you know, thought I was ingesting actual soap. And then I asked somebody else to test it. They're like, no, it's fine. I was like, it tastes like Dawn dish soap. It is weird to me that you could encounter something that would change the way that like life operated. You know what I mean? Like it just changed parts about you. You'd have this encounter and you would be absolutely different in such a way that every time you saw those things, lemon, lime, Gatorade, every time you tried to, we would go down the road and, and quite like my, my transparency here is I would go down the road and tell Stephanie, I'd be like, I smelled hamburgers or something. She's like, yeah, there's a tire that blew out in front of you. That's burnt rubber. You know what I mean? Like I have no idea. It would, it would be wrong for a while. And like, and it changed who I am. I, I think that there's a, there's a very true or a very real truth to the fact that we encounter things throughout life that change us. There are things that we, we see, we endure, we go through. And when we go through them, like there's parts of us that are changed uh, from that point forward. Like we're affected by different things, not necessarily the, the COVID outbreak, but like just life in general. Like that's the synopsis of life. It's how we adapt to the things that happen around us. Maybe even the things that happen to us. The difference is where getting COVID created some things within me that I didn't get a choice about the flavor of Gatorade or the smell or, you know, those sorts of things. But my, my choice is how I respond to those things. Like you think back about your life and there've been numerous things that have happened to you that you have made decisions about how you will respond to them, like how you will see those things in your life. Anyone remember their first heartbreak? Yeah, remember maybe back in high school or middle school and you had that person that was your first love and then, and then eventually, you know, something happened and they, you know, you broke up or in my case, it happened two or three times. You know, my girlfriend was cheating on me and I thought we were past it. And then my friends all go to this big event and they come back and they tell me, we saw your girlfriend. I was like, oh yeah, she told me she went. Yeah, buddy, but she was with a dude. Oh, another one. You like that? One of those, I can remember going home being like, that's it. I'm giving up on dating forever. You know what I mean? Like you have those experiences and, and yet you have to make decisions. Like, what will I learn? You burn your hand on a stove eye and you decide like, I need to make changes in my life because of this thing that I've encountered. Like we encounter things that, that cause us to be different no matter what. Typically it's, it's easy to do life when things are good, but most of the time the lessons we learn are in some of the more difficult situations. So I wondered this morning, maybe there's a way for us to look at the difficulties in life or the things that we might struggle with in life. Maybe there's a way to look at them that changes a bit of the DNA of who we are and the way we respond. As a matter of fact, I want to play a very short clip for you. It's about two minutes and 15 seconds. It's by a guy uh, who is speaking. His name is Jocko Willink. You've heard me talk about this guy in the past. I read one of his books a few years ago uh, called Extreme Ownership. It's an incredible book. The guy does a lot of leadership type things, but he really changes the way you look at some of um, life's adversities, if you will. And I think it's a pretty solid video. So if you would bring your attention to the screen for the next two and a half minutes. One of my direct subordinates, one of my guys that worked for me, he would, he would call me up or pull me aside with some major problem, some issue that was going on. And he'd say, boss, we got this and that and the other thing. And I'd look at him and I'd say, good. And finally one day he was telling me about some issue that he was having some problem. And he said, I already know what you're going to say. I said, well, what am I going to say? He said, you're going to say good. He said, that's what you always say. When something is wrong and going bad, you always just look at me and say good. And I said, well, yeah, when things are going bad, there's going to be some good that's going to come from it. Didn't get the new high speed gear we wanted. Good. Didn't get promoted. Good. More time to get better. Oh, mission got canceled? Good, we can focus on another one. Didn't get funded. Didn't get the job you wanted. Got injured. Sprained my ankle. Got tapped out? Good. Got beat? Good. You learned. Unexpected problems? Good. We have the opportunity to figure out a solution. That's it. When things are going bad, 
Don't get all bummed out. Don't get startled. Don't get frustrated. If you can say the word good, guess what? It means you're still alive. It means you're still breathing. And if you're still breathing, well now, you still got some fight left in you. So get up, dust off, reload, recalibrate, re-engage, and go out on the attack. Any of you feel like it's time to get up and go do something? Jocko Willink has the ability to motivate. He's one of those guys that, he comes from a, a background of uh, Navy SEAL operations and does a great job in leadership directions, those sorts of things. But as much as I want to give him credit, I'm also going to speak and say, he kind of stole this. You know what I mean? Like this idea, like this is not brand new. As, as a matter of fact, I'm convinced he stole it from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Let's go there this morning. Before I read there, I want to tell you, Jesus is doing the exact same thing in the Bible. You're reading the very beginning of something, and we'll read it here in just a moment on the screens, but you're going to read something here in a moment. There's the very beginning of something we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is this time where people were coming out of town to listen to Jesus and what he had to say and what was going on. And, and he, he, it seems almost impromptu that he just decides to sit down on this high spot, this elevated position, and begin to, to share and to begin to teach. And there's something that we have heard in this beginning here is there's the, the Beatitudes. If you've ever heard this before, that's the section of scripture we're going to be reading this morning. And you read this as like, blessed are they who X, you know, because they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that this. And the, the thing that I need you first to, to recognize is when you translate things over from the Aramaic originate, originating language, uh, oftentimes the Aramaic is influencing the Greek that we're reading because of the nature of the people we're talking about. And when you bring those over, sometimes words don't do well going into the English language. Like they do okay. And, and you need to know that like translating sometimes is a, is a work to be done. It's not something that just passively and quickly happens, but there's work to, to look at and say, like, how is this to be brought over in English? And one of the ways that they brought this over is this statement of blessed are the poor is the first one, or next, blessed are those who mourn. But this trouble is it doesn't use the Aramaic intention when it, in its fullness. I mean, when you hold a Bible up, it's a big book. You know what I mean? If you were to use some of the words in their fullness and explain every one of them, you're talking about a book that would increase in size dramatically. But when you think about the nature of like, what does it mean to be blessed are the poor in spirit? They don't really use the word for are. So if you were to, to remove that, like you're asking the question, of like, well, then what were they working to communicate? They're using a word that goes back into the Aramaic language. It's called makaria. All right. As a matter of fact, the Greeks, uh, when they talked about Cyprus, they, they named it uh, he makaria, which is a word for the happy isle. I know that sounds a bit odd, but stick with me for just a moment. They talked about Cyprus as if it were a place that no matter uh, which direction you came from, you could find everything that man needed between the shoreline and just at the entry of the, of the going into the interior, if you will. And the reason that they would talk about it this way is because they want to communicate that everything you needed, that great peace, that great life was there. And one of the words that they use to describe this is the joy of not having to toil. Okay, If you're from an existence where everything you do is to work in order to get food, like this is a very hand-to-mouth existence, and then you describe an area that's like, like, hey, this is a place to live of great joy because all of your needs are met in the immediate area. I mean, the, the fruits are there, the food is there, all those sorts of things. Like They use the same word to describe. This Makaria word is a word that they would associate, that they would know goes back to talking about this, this great place of, of, of joy or this great place of goodness. And so hear this when we read these a little bit differently this morning. I'm, I'm not here to necessarily get into a, a, a biblical language uh, discussion that much other than to say like there's some, there's some more fullness to how you read these. As a matter of fact this morning when you hear the word blessed are, hear that as 
Oh, the joy of. All right? That's more along the lines of what's being communicated in their language. Oh, the joy of. Oh, the, oh, the blessedness of this. Oh, the goodness of this. That's what's being communicated. Jesus is trying to communicate something about these different experiences that is so much more than just the word blessed. You know, we use the word maybe not in its fullness. And so this morning, before I even read this text, I want you to hear, every time you hear blessed are, I want you to hear him saying something that communicates in their world. Oh, the joys of this. Oh, the, the goodness of this. And it really will change the way, maybe deepen the way that you hear the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse Wood. Stand with me, if you would, for the reading of the Word. We do so out as a sign of respect for reading uh, of the, the Word of the Lord, especially when it's Jesus' words. Many of your Bibles, by the way, this will be in, uh, in red letters, which means Jesus is speaking if you have a Bible that uh, goes along that way. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll read on the screen or there where uh, you were holding in your own hands. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to Him, and He became to t began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God, we come before you this morning as you take words that seem very devastating to us, words that would normally be made to be dodged or avoided, and yet, God, you describe them as finding great joy, goodness, and blessedness in the midst of those words. Would you this morning, maybe for the next 15 minutes or so, open those to us, maybe in a different way, so that when we go back into this life, we may be changed by the effects of this passage. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning you jump into this passage, and I'll not be able to break down every one of them, but we'll start doing our due diligence of working through, and we'll use the time that we have allotted to do that. There are several of these that you would read and you would hear them very uh, initially and from a surface value. And so just give me a moment to do some exegetical work and unpack these a little bit at a time. The first one talking about this blessed are the poor in spirit. You hear the, the poor in spirit and you may think in the English language about someone who is poor and maybe like not having uh, monetary means or someone who is, uh, who is poor and doesn't have things to, to be without or to be lacking. Again, and notice the, the words that are being used here were not written in English. I, I know this may seem a bit sarcastic this morning. Morning, but because of the increased biblical illiterate world we live in, I need to tell you, Jesus did not speak English. Understand? Jesus did not speak English. Very likely speaking Greek and likely a little bit of the Aramaic that comes out of the words that we read are most translated from Greek, which is heavily influenced by Aramaic, which is kind of a, a new version of Hebrew, if you will. So if you, if you look back at Jesus' words, they're working to bring these over. And you need to know that the way He communicates things, just like some of you who are bilingual this morning, you may speak Spanish and understand that there are Spanish words that communicate a, a much more full than what we translate those Spanish words into English. And the same thing takes place here. So He talks about bless are those or, or those who are poor in spirit. It's not necessarily saying those who are without or those who are lacking. It's recognizing something a little bit different. It's more blessed is the man who understands he has nothing except for what God has given him. This is what poor in spirit means in his context. Not that he is downtrodden, uh, not that he is depressed or downed or, or, or in a bummer or kind of a meh mood or whatever word you want to use for that, but blessed is the man who understands he has nothing if God didn't give it to him. It, it's a statement of humility more so than being uh, lacking or, or not having. It's understanding that, there's, that I, the only things that I have are because God has given to me. I, I love the phrase you've heard me 
utter it several times, came from a conservation background. Uh, there's a group out there that this is kind of their mantra, and they say about the world around them, it's not ours, it's just our turn. You're saying like the, the, the uh, wildlife or this world or the, the farm that you are working, the ground that you own, whatever, wherever it is that you're living, it is not yours to have forever because you will be here, you will die, you will be gone, it will be somebody else's. And so to look at things as it's not mine, it's just it's my turn to take care of these things. It's a very different uh, approach to the way we look at this world as an asset and as something God's given us. But in looking at it that way, you start recognizing, like, there's nothing that I absolutely own. I mean, there's nothing that's, like, 100% mine. We may have some rules that keep up with, like, it being mine. But, but what changes when we see not a man who's poor in spirit, who is downtrodden, downcast in, in, in the depths and in the pit, so to speak, but a man in his humility that recognizes there is nothing I have that is not because God did not give it to me. There's a difference there. You understand? It's like, blessed, even better, oh, the joy, yeah, oh, the joy of the one who recognizes his utter helplessness and has put his entire trust in God. That's the fullness of being the poor in spirit. Oh, the joy of the one. Not, not that he recognizes, oh, I have nothing and nothing is mine, but blessed is the man who recognizes his dependence upon God. But what a, a much more deep understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. The second one that you read here is the statement of like, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, blessed are those who, who have gone through a time of loss. I would imagine this morning when you think about what it means to, to lose or to mourn, you have varying things that pop up in your mind. Uh, it's a great time of the year because in, in my world because I enjoy the college football season. It's a time when people can uh, have some camaraderie back and forth. I mean, I've watched uh, football games in the midst of people who cheered for the same team I cheer for, and I've watched them where I was the only one cheering for the team I was cheering for. Like, I've had both. I've, I've been at events before where there was a time when uh, Alabama and Ohio State were going back and forth a great deal. And uh, if you don't know this, I'm from Alabama, and when you live in Alabama, you have two choices of a football team to cheer for, and I like to win. So roll tight, all right? Some of you Auburn fans can throw rocks at me later, all right? But I, I decided to watch the Alabama-Ohio State game back when that was kind of a big rivalry in some of the playoffs at the home of the Bylers. Can you guess who Pastor Jessica tends to cheer for? She's one of those Buckeyes. She has many great qualities, and we forgive her for this. You understand? But we would watch the game back and forth, and it would be difficult to go away from those games because there were games when the Alabama side won. There were games when the Ohio State game won. There were those Ohio State team played and won. And so back and forth, there was this. I mean, when you think about a time of loss, though, like to mourn is so much more than I lost cheering for my team. It's so much more than even losing when I play for a team. To, to be in true mourning, we're not talking about something that is misplaced keys. I mean... Those who have endured great loss understand and in great mourning understand that real mourning happens when you lose someone that you care about and you love very much. Real mourning happens when you feel like someone's life has been taken that meant something deep to you. And I would ask you this, in truthfulness and in bare like bottom honesty. What is the only thing that brings you peace and comfort in a time of true mourning? And some of you will be tempted to say each other. Some of you will be tempted to say somebody's banana pudding. I'm not doubt. Hey, it's good. Okay. But let's be real. What is the thing that actually brings comfort? It is the presence of God more so than anything else. And it's not that our friends, you want to know a helpless time frame. It is, it is a helpless feeling to sit beside a mother in an emergency room here in Houston County while she is laying over her deceased son's body. And you sit there listening to her go through the process of mourning. And I ask you, what can Pastor Daniel say to this mother. There are no words. There are no words. Like there's such a sense of helplessness in those moments as the person who is to the side, especially when you recognize that it is only the comfort and the peace of God who can make these things better. What if we, what if we hear that in the context of this passage? I know that none of us necessarily want to, to mourn, so to speak, but oh, the joy of those who really know what it means to mourn, because it is then and only then that they will know the true comfort of the God who exists and is there for them. You talk about changing the way we look at things. I'm not, this doesn't make mourning not painful. It doesn't make mourning go away as like not a big deal or like something for us to brush over and, and act like, you know, doesn't happen or just get over. None of that. 
But it is to recognize it is, it is only in true mourning that you can feel maybe in the comfort and the depth of comfort that God can give you. So as we look at what it means to say blessed are the mourning, maybe it's oh the joy and the goodness of those who really know what it means to mourn because they really know what it means to have a God comfort them. It's a different way of just passively moving over. The next one is one that we've botched. And I, I'll give credit to an individual that's become quite popular the last couple of years. He's done a good job of, of describing to people what it means to say blessed are the meek. Because if you look into a, a meek, uh, a thesaurus this morning at the word meek, you hear these words, resigned, gentle, quiet, shy, mild, docile. You read those words that make someone seem who is meek, very, uh, very weak, if you will. And even though those two words kind of rhyme together, the words that Jesus is using to describe what it means to be meek could not be further. There's a gentleman by the name of, of, of Jordan Peterson who's grown a lot of, of popularity over the last couple of years. And one of the things that he's talked about is the nature for for men and young men to recognize that, that the, the anger that is within them, sometimes the, the ability to, let's just be real, the ability to fight and wield a sword is not inherently a bad thing. The reality of being dangerous is not a bad thing. The capacity to bring great chaos, he would say, is not a bad thing. And, and before you get riled very much with me, hear me out. The statement of what Jesus is trying to communicate about what it means to be meek. There's a guy who is a retired general in the military, and one of his phrases, his name's uh, James Mattis, one of his phrases was, be polite, be courteous, but have a plan to kill everyone in the room. It's a wild statement, okay? Understand that when he said it, he said it to a group of militarily trained individuals who were working in an environment where they did not know who their enemy was. They were going into an environment where they didn't know who in, their, who in the, the room was going to be an enemy and who was going to be a friend because most everyone they would be around would be toting weapons, okay? And so he makes this statement to them about being polite, be courteous, but have a plan to kill everyone in the room. I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning, there's an aspect of what he quoted to those, said to those individuals that we quote today. There's an aspect of that that better captures what it means to be meek in a biblical understanding than your understanding of quiet, docile, shy. As a matter of fact, many of you are sitting around individuals who are in this room right now who have been trained to bring about great chaos and destruction in situations around the world, especially from their military training and background. I'm here to tell you they are likely the ones who embody meek in this room better than any of us. Understand? Blessed are the ones who are, have the ability to bring about great chaos. There's another statement. If maybe those analogies don't get you, then hear this one. If you ever watch the movie The Avengers, there's this character that turns green when he gets angry. Anybody remember what the green guy's name is? Turns this big thing. What's his name? Hulk, there you go. He's got a line in one of those movies, like they're waiting on him to show up because they need his help, okay? And they're waiting on the Hulk to show up, and it's played by this guy who's kind of a nerdy scientist-looking stereotype guy, and he shows up, and they're like, hey, uh, so Dr. Banner, like, it's, it's time for you to get angry like that, you know, like, hey, hey, man, it's time for you to, you know, we need, we need the green guy, I need you to show up, that kind of thing. And they start talking about, it. they keep asking about, like, what is his secret? Like, what's the secret to being able to, to unleash the Hulk, so to speak? And when they, when they say, hey, man, it's time for you to, you know, whatever the secret is, it's time for you to do it, he's starting to walk toward the, the enemy that he's going after, and he turns back around and he says, that's my secret. Anybody remember what his line is? I'm always angry. I'm, always angry. I'm going to tell you, the Hulk probably captures the picture of what meekness is greater than what your thoughts of meekness in the Bible are. Oh, the joys of the one who can bring about great destruction and chaos and yet knows how to hold it back yet who knows how to contain it and to only use it if and when necessary. The one who has the capacity to do these things. And yet, you, folks, when you look at what he's trying to communicate of what it means to be meek, it is not to be some shy, withery person who, who is no threat or is, is no problem and, and never gets riled. Absolutely not. To be meek in a biblical understanding, a biblical context, is to be the one who has the ability to wield the sword and yet keeps it sheathed under most occasions. 
The last one that we'll talk about this morning, I guess, just because of the sake of time. I love this picture of what it means when he says, blessed or the joy of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The trouble again, there's so many things that Jesus is dealing with in his context that speak so clearly to his world, but they just don't do a good job here because the reality is, as much as you think you know what this is about, there are only probably a few of us, statistically speaking, only a few of us in this room that really knows what it means to hunger or thirst. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> if you have ever said, no, I don't like that, all right? Uh, maybe you're the person who one of the stereotypes would be like, macaroni and cheese is your straight diet. You know what I mean? You've never been hungry. You know what I mean? Like never. Like, you've never been really hungry. You may have thought that you were really hungry and you really wanted the macaroni and cheese, but trust me in this, you've never really, really been hungry if macaroni and cheese is your idea of this is the only thing that I need that will sustain me. You understand? If, if your thoughts of like, man, I'm really thirsty, I could take a Mountain Dew. <coughs> You're not, that's not thirsty. You know what I mean? Like you, you may want a Mountain Dew, but like you, you have to understand like there's a difference between, there's a difference between the people he's talking to who oftentimes don't know if or when their next meal is coming because they live in a very difficult existence. Many of them, not all, but blessed are those who know what it means to have actual hunger. This past week, you, you hear stories. I shared one this past Sunday about my, the, the mules and down at the bottom of the hill at my house. And and in this past week, I went down to, to feed again. And, and so we're in the series where it's part of the year where there's, you know, the grass is gone. We're having to feed hay and, and keep the water, uh, water bins are always need to be filled up. And so we've got a water line run down there and I pretty much just turn a, a hose bib at my house and that hose bib fills our water tank up. And every day I'll run it for 15 to 30 minutes and make sure that they have plenty of water. And so I'd been down, I'd seen they had about this much left in a huge, this big metal pin, uh, thing that we have about this much left in the bottom. And so for several days, I'd been turning it on for 30 or 45 minutes at a time and had been going down to feed, but I hadn't gone over to look at the water. And so when I went back down, well, I guess it was Friday or Saturday, I went back down to check out what was going on. And when I get down there to the, to the, to the uh, little barn that we have, I look and the water trough is laying on its side out in the field. And I'm like, oh no. And, and I look over and one of my mules has a footprint where the water had been coming out of the spigot. She had a footprint right there pushed down and her face is the size of that little water hole and she's sucking the mud up out of the water, out of the ground. Like I'm, I'm watching stuff that looks like the consistency of chocolate milk. And I'm going, what have y'all done? You see what happens sometimes is they get a little bit cantankerous, mules, and, and they knock the hose bib off. And then so that, that hose bib, when I turn it on for 30 minutes, if I don't check it pretty often, it'll pour water straight on the ground. It's not filling the, the water bin up anymore. And so for a couple of days, I've been turning the water on, but I hadn't noticed that that hose bib was about an inch and a half too far outside of that, which is where it goes to. And it was pouring water on the ground. So for two or three days, their chance of having water was purely whatever was puddling in their footprints on the ground. And so I see it, of course, I'm going into like, oh, this is horrible. I got to make sure. So we're getting the water back up. I'm going up the hill to turn the water back on. And when I get the water turned back on and come back down and start filling it up. I watched something ensue. I've never seen these animals behave this way in my entire ownership of them and being around them. It was an absolute to the death fight going on to see who could get their faces underneath that water. Where it's coming out of a little standard hose bib. I mean, biting, kicking, fighting. They were tearing up fences because they were trying to get their heads through places that they couldn't before. And let me just tell you the amount of guilt that comes with, I thought I had been taking care of this for the last several days. The amount of guilt that overwhelms and it's a horrible, horrible experience for them way so more so than for me. But as, as I've watched them like, they are fighting to try and get that which will sustain them and that which will keep them alive. And on the same week that I knew we would be talking about this passage, I'm watching these animals do everything they can to fight and get what they know matters the most and this will keep them alive. And so when you hear this phrase, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're not talking about someone who passively attends church every now and then or someone who reads their Bible every now and then or whenever they hit one of those inspirational things on Facebook, they pause for just another few seconds so that they can read it. You understand? Like We're talking about someone who it is within them that they understand 
It is the pursuit of, of Christ's likeness and being a righteous person. It is in that that I find like this is what will sustain me. This is what brings about real life and the real depth of life. It is in hungering and thirsting at a level that is not, I need a Mountain Dew and some macaroni and cheese. You understand? It's at a much greater level. So this morning, when you hear these things, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there is depth of what Jesus is saying in these very short words that doesn't always communicate into our 2023 existence. If you're interested in hearing the rest of these stories, this will be my commercial for you. Wednesday night at 6.30, we'll go through the rest of them, all right? There's my shameless plug. Come hang out with us Wednesday night at 6.30, and we'll continue to go through them. God, we come before you this morning thanking you for a chance to be able to look back and see the depth of what you are speaking into these people's lives. God, the way that when you decide to sit down and teach, you decide to change the way that they see words that may be described as adversity or difficult times. But yet, God, you de your determination and your statements are to change the way they look at those things. So, God, as we think about what it means to be, God, what it means to, to exist, to be, to be poor in spirit in some ways, to be meek, to have mourned. God, would you change the way we see things, maybe to see them in such a way that you may be teaching us, you may be growing us, you may be, yeah, you may be turning us into the people you want us to be. God, we love you today. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.